Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. Well, thank you for tuning in. We have a, a really uh, excellent show today. We're very lucky to have the author of a very disruptive book on the advertising business called Madison Avenue Manslaughter. And we're here with Mr. Michael Farmer. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rob. Very happy to be here with you. So uh, this book, wow, uh, as, as it says here uh, on the subhead, an inside view of fee-cutting clients, profit-hungry owners, and declining ad agencies. I could not be more optimistic about that one. <laughs> well, I have to say, this book is more like a memoir mm. of my 25 years consulting to the advertising business uh, than it is an original piece of work. It, it really describes the experience that I've had in the last 25 years working with agencies since about 1992 on their various issues, uh, mm -hmm. having to do with their relationships with their clients, the kind of work they're doing, how much they get paid, very mm -hmm. much in particular. And I tried in this book to be a good reporter mm -hmm. of what I found in 92, in 95, in 98, 2000, 2005, 2010, and, by and the way, so forth and so on. I, I think, you know, just on the, on the, on the style of the book, I, I think it's riveting because it's truth and it's reporting, like you say, but it reads like a narrative. Well, it's a story. I think that the industry has been disrupted by a sequence of things. Mm. There has not been one disruption. And what I tried to capture in the book, the early chapters, was what are the history of disruptions that have had the effect of changing the way agency and the amounts in which they're paid for the work they do, the way they have to organize themselves and the way their relationships are currently organized. So uh, it's a story, really, of a series of disruptions that have been very harmful, I think, for ad agencies. In some cases, uh, due to the way they've managed themselves, in other cases, by clients that don't have a clear vision about how to get the best value from their agencies. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, kind of going back to the storytelling, and we'll get into the, some of the specifics, is that as a story, and as someone who's been around story his whole career, it's, it's a bit of a tragedy, and it's... Uh, in some ways, it's the fall of Goliaths. You know, some of these big networks, it's a dismantling of them. Uh, is that how you saw it in your journalistic I, side to this? Yes. I, what I've seen, of course, is that you, you can't ignore the fact that most of the big uh, well-known agencies who are global are owned by holding companies. And the holding companies started accumulating them in the 60s and then much more rapidly in the 80s. At that time, the agencies were public. Their profitability was okay. But the truth of the matter is the profitability they could have earned in those media commission days was very, very high. And the holding companies figured that if they bought the agencies, they could squeeze the excess costs out of them drive the profits up, which would drive up the shares of the holding company, making it cheaper for holding companies to make further acquisitions. And so it was, it was a game of buying terrific, undervalued assets that could be made more valuable. 
and to use that to drive holding company growth. That's a, a very well-known uh, financial model in you know in corporate circles. Okay, let me, let me just stop you right there. So we have a, we got a couple um, as we've seen in our data. Massive data analysis on the show. Uh, we do have quite a few young listeners on the show. So maybe you can just, in layman's terms, just talk a little bit about there was commissions and then fees. Maybe just talk a little bit about when, when, when young people see Mad Men, what was that revenue stream looking like? What was that uh, financial model looking like versus what these kids are experiencing today, which is not Mad Men? Very important thing to talk about and to understand if we go back to Mad Men, and even before Mad Men, uh, ad agencies were paid a 15% commission on what their clients spent on media. And before television, you know, before the Second World War, they got a 15% commission on radio time that they bought and a 15% commission on the space they bought in newspapers and magazines. They also earned a 17.5% markup on production costs that they incurred. They made a lot of money. And the truth of the matter was they weren't doing a whole lot of work. So what they could afford to do is hire very good people. And they could hire two people for every one that they needed. And they could pay them great salaries. And they could pay them bonuses. And they could pay for great parties and do as much as any client needed with respect to work. You made so much money, you could really deliver a high-quality product. That was then. Mm -hmm. At the same time, from about 1975 to 1990, uh, television space was becoming more and more expensive because there were just a few television networks, mm -hmm. ABC, NBC, CBS. And PIX and here there in New York, a, WPIX. And, okay, <laughs> well, there were some others. What happened is that there was a scarcity of the TV space that everyone wanted. So the price of that space went up and agencies benefited from it because they were basically paid a commission on whatever the space cost. So from 1975 to 1990, on top of making a ton of money from the commissions, they made even more because the cost of that media was inflating. Mm -hmm. By In the 80s and the 90s, clients said, enough of this. Uh, you know, we're paying those people for scarcity. And we have to go to a new system of payment. We're going to pay agencies basically by the head for the number of people that work on our accounts. We'll figure out what their right. salaries well, well, are, et cetera. Well, before we get to that ugly reality, um, I just want to pick up on something you said. So there was a perception that uh, the agencies weren't working very hard. And I wonder in kind of a uh, almost a Warren Buffett model, you know, uh, price is what you pay, but value is what you get. What's the value uh, of a Tony the Tiger? You know, what's the value of, um, you know, in our instance, giving a personality to the Energizer Bunny? Now, it may have taken us... Uh, I don't know, three days to come up with something uh, that would ultimately become a valued asset for a company like Energizer uh, in perpetuity. So even though we may say that uh, the time, hey, it, it only took you, you know, three days to do that, uh, to, to give that uh, bunny personality, the value of that 
couldn't that in some way justify the, the, the big revenue? Oh, absolutely. But I don't think Tony the Tiger was developed in three days or the Energizer Bunny. In fact, my experience with agencies goes back to the 70s when I was at Boston Consulting Group and worked with clients like General Foods and, as a result, worked with their agencies. I think the agency people work very hard. Now, they had extra creative teams working on it. They were generating a large number of ideas for mm -hmm. clients in all their products. Uh, they were doing a huge amount of rework. It was going back and forth and back and forth. It might be true that the average creative, as David Ogilvy says in, in a book he wrote in 1983, the average creative only sees three ads a year on on the air. Mm -hmm. That would make you believe that they were only doing three things during the year, but they weren't. It was a very work-intensive process, and it did lead to some, I think, terrific work mm -hmm. that has had enduring value. Uh, and by the way, I mean, you know, as, as, as a recovering copywriter, I mean— you know, we were in the frog business. I mean, you were constantly showing frogs, you know, to get to, to get to a prince. So, uh, you know, there was a lot of frogs that needed to be developed. So I, I think that clients might have felt that it was a very expensive process, but mm -hmm. I don't think they felt that anybody was particularly loafing. And uh, the other thing is that the more clients spent on media in those madmen days, the better results they got from it. I think Procter & Gamble who always outspent their competitors by 50% mm -hmm. in any category, developed market shares that were leading market right. shares. So the agency's argument, the more you spend on media, uh, the more we make, the better a job we can do for you creatively, was absolutely very true in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, There's no and, question and, about and, it. And by the way, in a week where I think I just read uh, – Procter and Gamble is going to slash another four hundred million from agencies. Million. So I, you know, I might say that uh, they they had some equity built from a couple of years ago, and uh, now they're well, now they're know, harvesting a bit. I think we should remember there was a lot more going on than the fact that agencies made a lot of money on media commissions. We we should remember that TV was new after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. So if we're we're talking 1950, 1960, 1970, television reigned supreme, and it really worked. Mm -hmm. It was the way to get to consumers. They weren't tired of ads yet. There were only three networks. The agencies did a fabulous job with television commercials, and it built some enduring brands. So uh, we shouldn't forget about that. The conditions that exist today couldn't be more different um, in terms of how agencies are paid, uh, the number of different ways that uh, consumers see advertising. Uh, we're all pretty tired of television advertising. There's no question about it. And it doesn't work quite the same way mm -hmm. with an ad-saturated population. So I think that if I were to put my finger on the major disruption from then to today, uh, it's that uh, there were some very particular conditions during the madman era that led to agency success, that led to a lot of wealth, and led to client success for brands. Almost none of those conditions exist today. Yeah, Agencies are not paid very well because they're paid by a different system. Uh, there has been a big demographic change. We've got uh, millennials now the largest uh, segment of the population. We've got e-commerce 
And uh, we've got a lot of white-labeled products in supermarket chains and elsewhere mm-hmm. that, that seem to do very well. By the way, I, in the early 90s, uh, I worked for a guy named Bob Reitzfeld, fantastic uh, art director and great artist today. And he said to me very early on, he said, right business, kid, wrong time. That is so true. I mean, I think if... If I were an agency person instead of an evaluator of agency operations, I would cling to those to the myths of that old time because I think there's a belief that if that we could somehow replicate our success by redoubling our creative efforts, for mm-hmm. example, today, and that will bring us fame and fortune and great relationships and, and we'll be respected for the work we do. I think that those people who want to replicate the success of the past are going to have a very tough time because almost none of the conditions are there. TV's yeah. not a new thing. Millennials don't even watch it. Uh, we're tired of TV commercials. Uh, print has changed uh, almost beyond belief. There's all the social and digital media that's available, and clients have been cutting agency fees for 25 years. So the money isn't there either. So I think that's uh, all very uh, depressing, (laughs) but all very true, and uh, we'll find a silver lining somewhere. One of the questions I had uh, as I I went through your book, and again, if you haven't read this book, uh, Madison Avenue Manslaughter, and you're in our business, uh, you owe it to yourself to read it because it's it's, it's very powerful. Uh, My question is, are clients satisfied? I mean, you you have this interesting life where you get to sit on both sides of the table. You get to hear us on the agency side bitch and whine to you, and you get to hear from the clients on their side. Again, in a in their bubble without the agency folks, are they satisfied with this new system? I think that it's hard to talk about clients per se because we have chief executive of clients, we have chief financial officers of clients. We have chief marketing officers of clients. We have the uh, profit center uh, CEOs uh, who run the products, who have P&L responsibility, and we've got procurement. And I think the problem is that generally there is dissatisfaction, but everyone's dissatisfied in a different way. (laughs) And they tend to take it out on the agencies at the end of the day. Just as they did in the madman days, if they weren't happy with the advertising, they got rid of the agency. That was Mm -hmm. the end of the story. And the CEO was probably involved. Today, it's a different problem. CEOs are unhappy because their brands aren't growing. Now, why they aren't growing is a very complicated thing, but the brands aren't growing at P&G or at Nestle or at Unilever or American Express or Bank of America or any other major advertiser you might want to talk to. I like that because none of the clients you mentioned are ours. You're right. Oh, good. You're 100% I'm, I'm, right. I'm happy because I'm, <laughs> I'm a very TBWA loyal person. Uh, CEOs are unhappy because they have been hired to improve shareholder value. Mm-hmm. In fact, they are paid tens of million dollars a year to increase shareholder value. And that means growth, period. Growth and profitability. So uh, they are unhappy. They've got Wall Street on their case constantly. They got boards of directors on their case. Um, they know that their job uh, depends on delivering performance, and they don't really quite know what to do about it because 
the growth stopped in about 2000, in the mid-2000s, and it hasn't really picked up since. So what are they supposed to do about it? They're frustrated. The chief financial officers have got the numbers to worry about, and of course, they look at earnings per share and market, market stock, stock price. Uh, they're not delivering the goods. They put pressure on all of the businesses to budget lower costs. So that affects the people running the products who are told that if you don't have the sales, you're going to have lower cost. And then procurement is turned loose to get the lower costs. And the CMO is a person off in a corner somewhere having a huge media spend and a very large marketing spend for agencies and is responsible for the work the agency is doing. And they're being asked, what are we getting for all that money? Mm -hmm. And they don't know. Mm-hmm. They they don't know at P and G, quite frankly. Uh, in the last decade, there has been a shift of media dollars away from traditional, you know, TV, radio, print, towards digital and social. But no one knows whether it really delivers the good or not. Mm-hmm. Even though they're all saying to themselves, "We need to be more digital. We need to be more social." Yeah. We want our agencies to pivot in that direction. We're putting together media spends and scopes of work in that direction. But I think P&G was the first who said, you know, we cut $140 million out of one quarter on digital, and it didn't make the slightest difference. So what are they doing now? They're cutting $750 million out of their spend for 2018, and, they, and they're cutting their agency roster by 50% in order to cut another $400 million out. They're raising the question, Maybe we can't get anything for this money, and maybe Mm -hmm. we're overspending. Mm. So when you say, is the client happy or unhappy? I think they're they're unhappy in many different ways in the same way that Chekhov described families that are are unhappy, uh, in that everyone's unhappy for a different reason. (laughs) And who can they point the finger at that isn't one of them? Right. They're not going to point the finger at themselves. They're not going to say, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We don't know whether our spend is correct or not. We don't know if it's on the, the right kind of media mix uh, or the right type of scope of work. So what we're going to do is to blame the agency. And over the last decade, agency relationships have gone from you know seven years to four years to two to three years. Right. Well, just, just on that point, I mean, I think we're going to reach a point where they're going to get rid of the agencies – And when they point the finger, I know exactly where they're going to point the finger to. They're going to point the finger to the in-house agency. (laughs) Well, I actually have a client with an in-house agency. And I'll tell you this. uh, They are no better at running in-house agencies than ad agencies are at running their operations when they have an external client. Because they have finance breathing down their neck in the corporation saying, what do you need 40 people for? Can you explain to me? Right. Couldn't you do it with 20? So uh, so I think this comes back to where the agency provides value. You go back to this word scarcity. Yeah, growth has become a scarcity. Where is growth? You know, where is that happening? So I guess maybe in your experience too, and as you uh, have been on your journey, where you, in, in modern times, in recent times, let's call it, where are you seeing agencies providing value? I'll tell you where I think they think they're providing value and where I think they should be providing value. Because I think the the real problem of agencies in their relationships with clients 
is that they are not focused on solving the client's real problem, which is a lack of growth and profitability from products. Now, I have to reach back into my own past because I'm sort of a card-carrying management consultant that worked uh, at Boston Consulting Group and was a director at Bain. And we spent, uh, or at least I spent uh, nearly 20 years working in relationships that were sold on the basis that all clients underperform their full potential. Their full growth and profitability potential is something that can be determined through good analysis, mm -hmm. and you can get agreement on what the targets can be. And then we set out to carry out work that would achieve it. And it's one of the reasons that uh, the consulting industry has grown like crazy for the last 30 years. Bain was 100 people when I joined it. It's mm. seven or 8,000 today. But they've always focused on our business is to help the clients grow and become more profitable. In other words, to have better performance. Now, ad agencies were in that business during the creative revolutionary madmen days. They were because they were in the business of doing two things, encouraging their clients to spend more on media and then doing very creative work to fill up that media. Right. And given the special circumstances of those days, that made products grow. That's how P&G got to where they are today. They spent the money. Mm -hmm. They had great creative. And, uh, and that was all that was going on. Today, it's a different ballgame because just being creative – and excuse me, Rob, because mm. I know you're a creative and you're an ad guy. But just to do cute ads mm. that win awards – does not move brands today. And so I think that for agencies to really deliver value for their clients means that they've got to do exactly what the consultants do. They have to go to the P&Gs and the Unilevers and the Nestle's and say, look, your brands aren't growing. Our mission will be to figure out how good the brands can be, what kind of strategies will get us there, what kind of a media spend and mix would be required, and what types of scopes of work will be required? Mm -hmm. And we will do that execution. Now, that might mean doing very operational things. If yeah. you're, if you're uh, working for McDonald's, you might end up getting involved in uh, you know, in-store online ordering mm -hmm. or other kinds of things that aren't typical advertising type things that are more operational in nature. And by the way, I think for, for us as a you – know, as, as, as you know, a TBWA entity, that's always been the nature of our business through disruption. You know, we, when you go into a uh, disruption day, it's all parts of the business. You are constantly going through all parts of the business, and the solution might not be uh, what would traditionally be an ad. I think the challenge today is that I don't know if clients, when they hire you as a communications company, if they're open enough to say, oh, yeah, why don't you also take a look at some of our operations? Well, if, if I were a client knowing everything that I know today, if I were a CMO or the head of a business that you know was responsible for products, I'd say I am hiring this agency explicitly because I expect them to come up with strategies and uh, deliverables that are going to move my brands. Everyone has to understand that's what it is. I'm not hiring them because they're creative. I'm not hiring them because they can do digital. Uh, I'm not hiring them because they can crank out 10,000 deliverables for me this mm -hmm. year that are in my scope of work. I'm hiring them 
for results. And every conversation we ought to have around media and around creative executions and strategy work is about what's it doing for the brands. Now, I fault agencies, Rob. I mean, I look at their websites. I, I talk to a, account heads. I talk to office heads. I talk to CEOs about what the agency's mission is. I'm going to say eight times out of 10, they'll come back and say, well, we're being hired because we're creative. We're mm -hmm. special. Mm -hmm. We're really good at that. But they can't, it isn't like the 60s where you can make a direct link between creativity and results. Mm -hmm. So even with TBWA, I'd be happier for you if you were saying, we disrupt so that we can improve your performance and not just we're, we're the disruption agency. Uh, disruption can hey, uh, also we, be we, destructive. We've, we've got production standing by. Guys, I want you to tweak the website right now. You heard Mike. Tweak it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're 100% right because I was going to ask you about We disrupt so that we, we can improve your performance because our mission is to improve your performance. Right. That's what we work on. And if we don't do that, we're not succeeding. If you don't hire us for that, then you're not the right kind of client for us. And, and again, I, I think you're 100% right because... Creativity is what we do. You could also argue creativity is how we do it, but it's not why we do it. No, absolutely. And I think uh, that's the key like, issue. I'm an analyst. Analysis is what I do. Right. I get numbers. I analyze them. I turn them into stories. Analysis is not what I am. Analysis is not what the, purp the purpose of my work. Mm. The purpose is something that it's directed to achieving. Exactly. And I, I love the term disruption because you have to get people's heads screwed on differently so that they can step away from their present. Yep. You know, I, the most disruptive thing I found in a very long consulting career is to do a diagnostic that very clearly defines where someone is today. I mean, that puts a pin in the map and says, let me tell you where your brands are. Let me tell you why they are where they are relative to competition or relative to the perceptions in the marketplace. And let me tell you how far that is from where you could be. That's disruptive because most companies have myths about where they are. Mm -hmm. I remember one time doing an analysis of a U.S. steel company. They only measured their performance and their market shares against other U.S. steel companies. They ignored uh, Mexican steel. They ignored Brazilian steel. Mm. They ignored Japanese steel, which had 30% of the marketplace. So they thought they were okay. They were gaining share. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, if you put the pin in the map and said, actually, you've been losing share in the steel business for the last 12 years, that's disruptive. Yeah. And so doing a great job for a client when you start a, an advertising relationship to say, we're going to give you a diagnostic of where we think your brands are today, a very objective one, and we're going to define where they could be, and our program of work with you is going to be how you get there. That will be the most disruptive thing you could possibly do. Well, it sounds uh, a lot like what we are trying to do uh, uh, on a daily basis. I want to come back to the CMO piece because uh, we have a number of CMOs who listen to the show, who have written to me uh, and said they listen to the show. Um, what's the fate of the CMO today? I mean, we hear a lot of conversations about CMO maybe becoming more of a CIO. Now that the digital, you know, the bloom is off the digital rose, is, is there another kind of change? What's the fate of the CMO, you know, in, in your world as you see it? Well, uh, the, the CMO's got a very difficult position because although 
in the end, they sort of get held responsible for the total marketing budget. Uh, the budget actually is owned by the profit centers, isn't it? By the, the people that have the products. And the CMO is meant to be an expert about that spend, an influencer about the way they spend it, uh, an expert in how you use agencies and other suppliers to generate the results. But they don't actually have any levers that they can push where they are accountable for the results. They just take the blame. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're, more, they're, they're a more likely target for the blame of brands being dead in the water today mm -hmm. than anybody else, although arguably it's the people that are running the products that, that haven't adjusted mm -hmm. appropriately. It's very hard for a CMO to get out in front mm. and uh, to try to lead the heads of the businesses in certain directions, and yet that's their job. Right. So I think the CMOs are a really endangered species if they don't start to develop a better understanding of what it will take to get the brands moving again, number one, and secondly how spend can be deployed to do that. And I think they need to hire and to demand higher quality relationships from their agency suppliers or even their consulting suppliers mm -hmm. uh, uh, on that question. If I were a CMO with all the pressures that they're under and only having a job uh, expectation of three years, I'd want to know how do we get a higher ROI in what we're spending? How can I have better answers? How can I lead the product groups to do the right thing? And how can I design uh, agency relationships to get more value from them? Mm -hmm. The problem is they've delegated too much of this to procurement. And procurement says, well, you're not getting the performance, so we're just going to cut, cut the fees. Mm -hmm. We're going to cut the costs. What has that done to agencies over the last decade? It has meant that while the workloads are growing, which they are, that agencies have fewer people to handle greater and more complicated workloads to solve a bigger problem. So I think procurement's notion that you solve the uh, performance problem by cutting costs has crippled the very suppliers that are required to solve the problem. Well, it's without question. not very smart. And I think the best people have always invested in the brands that they work in. You know, uh, the, the brands that they work on. And I think what's happening is that very good people, I'm seeing it all around me, they're not going to invest in the brand because that CMO, they're going to be gone in 24 months. Well, they probably will be. When you think about it as a, a network of power relationships, let's say you've got the agency. We'll leave the holding company mm -hmm. out of this. You've got the agency, you've got the CMO, and you've got procurement. Now, that's a simplified relationship. But the CMO doesn't have the answers. Procurement always has the answer because they always can deliver the 10% cost saving. Yep. Agencies, in my view, have failed to provide the CMO with a better defense for the, the spend. And uh, I major on this in my book. Uh, I say, what is the logic of doing more and more work for a client? And that work is designed to try to improve brand performance and not measure, document, negotiate fees based on that workload. Because, you know, mm -hmm. I've been working with holding companies, agencies for 25 years. I have yet to come across an agency that systematically documents their scopes of work, 
measures them in a uniform way and uses them to negotiate their fees. So if that basic discipline isn't done, it's pretty hard to defend fees uh, in the face of growing workload. So I, I think agencies, you know, they've kind of shot themselves in the foot on this one. I'm not sure that I entirely understand why there is a, an allergy against keeping track of how much work gets done and making sure that every client in an agency office or every client across an agency network does it the same way. But there's definitely an allergy to this discipline. <laughs> yeah, well, part of it, too, is we, we don't have enough people to do it. We're too busy serving clients. Well, that's true. On, uh, You're too limited. busy pitching. Yeah, uh, pitching, too. Pitching for the next client that you need because of the one you just lost. So, uh, no, I think there is a, there is a need to redress the power uh, balance. I think CMOs need to be strengthened mm -hmm. and to have more answers so they can defend their turf. Yeah, and, and, I, th and, I, and yeah. I think having that kind of empathy for this CMO. I think agencies, uh, at least uh, I've seen the good ones, we, we understand that your job is to make that CMO a rock star in their Absolutely. company. Absolutely. Uh, Rob, you've got that so right. Uh, and they need to be armed so that they can defend their spend against the CFO and against procurement, whose discipline is simply to cut costs. By the way, uh, I think the, the kind of procurement people that are in advertising companies have gone about their job absolutely the wrong way because if you look at what procurement does in the automotive business or the aerospace business or any manufacturing business, they are there to get more strategic partnerships out of suppliers. Right. They are there to reduce the number of suppliers. They are there to eliminate unnecessary frictional costs. You think about the costs that you incur through bad briefing and bad ad approval. Procurement should be working to get those out of the relationship so that the money that you get paid is 100% dedicated to doing creative and strategic work instead of you having all these frictional costs and trying to get something through the ad approval process at a client. I think this is a, this is a critical point. And um, one of the things when you, when you came in and, and, and spoke to our team is, you know, you talked about how Japanese car makers, uh, you look at Nissan, you look at Toyota, uh, their relationship to their suppliers helps them from a cost standpoint and from ultimately a product standpoint and a growth standpoint. I mean, maybe just talk a little bit. I think it was uh, it was a Toyota way, right, that well, you were there's teaching a, us? Toyota uh, in particular, for all sorts of historical reasons after the war, had to develop factories that worked differently. Uh, they didn't have the scale of U.S. car manufacturers. Uh, they had terrible roads. Uh, they had short runs. So they had to develop very flexible factories. And they had to have relationships with suppliers where the suppliers knew what was going on on mm -hmm. the assembly line and could make high-quality products that could be put right on the cars mm -hmm. as they were coming down the line. They didn't have time uh, to, uh, to inventory supplier products. Uh, or to test them or to make sure they were okay. They didn't have the working capital to uh, have inventories of them. So they created a system called the Toyota Way in which their suppliers knew everything about what the car design was going to look like. The suppliers were involved in designing their components to fit. And then they had to meet very high standards of manufacturing so that they could guarantee that uh, their products had only 25 parts per million defect. 
And then they had to know the production schedule so they could deliver right to the production line three times a day. And by the way, this would require, I mean, uh, a real connection between supplier uh, and and brand. Well, absolutely. Because the factory is very analogous to uh, an agency, you know? Now, interestingly enough, uh, in the years that I was at Bain, uh, we did a lot of work with companies that were moving from old-style supplier relationships to new style. What was Mm. old style? Let's say you were running Chrysler and you had suppliers make brakes. Old style Chrysler was they had a department that designed the brake, put together the blueprints, sent it out to 20 people for bids, had sort of an RFP process, picked uh, four or five people based on low cost. Those suppliers delivered according to a certain schedule. Chrysler would inventory the stuff. They'd inspect it. They'd put it on the car. The car would go out and run for 10,000 miles. The brakes would fail. Then there'd be a warranty problem, okay? Which what is they, exactly what we're living with today in the advertising business. Well, that's <laughs> what you're living uh, in fact. The, the Chrysler fu- way. The funny thing is that those very procurement people who in manufacturing were told, I want to go from 20 to 2, I want the suppliers to design the product. I want the suppliers to deliver to the assembly line, and the product is so perfect I don't have any warranty problems because that saves cost. Those same procurement people are working in the advertising industry today, and what are they doing? They got rid of the AOR. Now there are 50 ad agencies. They got away from the agency designing strategies and scopes of work and media strategies to having the client do it. Uh, and and they're just buying the services based on cost. The indirect procurement in advertising have gone exactly the wrong way. And uh, I write a fair amount about it. And I think that's something that agencies need to have an understanding, that there is such a thing as good procurement. Mm-hmm. But you have to have a good understanding of your own operation to be able to be a, a good supplier to a good procurement uh, person. The CMOs need to know that the procurement practices that exist today at advertisers uh, are destructive. Mm -hmm. And they've gone exactly the opposite of the Toyota way. All they have to do is read a book that I I use when I teach at uh, City College of New York. It's called The Machine That Changed the World. It's an MIT study of the automotive supplying process. It was written in 1990 about what supplier relationships used to look like and what they became that allowed U.S. manufacturers to compete with the Japanese mm. on an equal basis. And so it is, it's a textbook study of uh, how you go from bad procurement to good procurement. What this industry needs is to go from bad procurement to good procurement. Yeah, no, I, I feel like we're living in a world where uh, advertising is, is like driving a K car and we could be driving, you know, a Lexus. Well, then, they treat you like you're a commodity supplier, and then you're scoped to work to do commodity work. You know, in 1992, my first agency client uh, had about 50 creatives. In today's money, that would that would be about a 50 million dollar operation. Mm. Okay, they did 385 briefs. Okay, that was about seven and a half briefs per creative. That's what they did. I have a client today that has 50 creatives. They did 14,750 deliverables this year. Wow. And what is it? Well, about 40% of their workload is digital and social. So they're doing Facebook. They're doing Instagram. They're doing email marketing. uh, They're doing Yahoo. They're doing Google. They're doing a million different things. 
the average creative is doing 284 executions per year. I mean, that's one a day, isn't it? Yeah. The average of the 50 creatives is doing uh, an execution a day, whereas... And by the way, 283 of those 284 are forgettable. Oh, absolutely. I, I would argue that the clients in their thoughtless desire to be more social and more digital are just giving executions to agency who salute and do it. And there's no thought behind it. It's not delivering brand growth. It's why P&G mm-hmm. can cut $140 million out mm-hmm. in a quarter and not see a, a bit of a change. It's killing the agency's capability to do thinking. It's killing the agency's reputation with a client that they are thinkers about brand performance. So this uh, – and, and I, I wrote an article that was very pejorative on the subject. I said if agencies were like French restaurants back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, they're like uh, fast food operations day flipping burgers mm. because that's what the executions look like. Now, I'd go to a CMO and I would say, you know something, this highly execution-oriented scope of work that you're giving us is a waste of your money. Mm. It is not delivering value for the brand. It's being paid for at commodity rates. It's killing us to do it. And it's it, it, and it's not good for us either. Why don't we sit down and really think about the kind of scope of work and media plan that would move the brands again? I guarantee it would have a lot fewer executions. it have a lot more strategic thinking in it. And who knows what the mix between traditional and digital might be. It, mm-hmm. it might be a, a different mix than, you know, the direction you're headed today. I don't think that conversation is happening. Yeah. Now, part of the problem here is that the holding companies, uh, you know, squeeze. They need profits that are growing from agencies whose fees that are being cut. Mm-hmm. Right there, you've got a you're caught between the rock and the hard place, aren't you? You're caught between the profit-hungry owner that has its own share price concerns. And the advertiser that's not growing, that's squeezing your fees. By the way, I like to say we're caught between the dog and the fire hydrant. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I think, uh, you know, optimistically, though, I think that um, you you have given some keys to the kingdom. If you think about this uh, tighter relationship a la Asian car manufacturing, if you think about uh, unlocking brand potential, selling the unlocking of potential versus selling just creative, I think there's room for optimism. Rob, I I couldn't agree more. The the fact that there is underperformance in the marketplace, the clients, Mm. that ought to be the greatest opportunity in the world for today's beleaguered ad agencies. Uh, It's a funny thing, but if you go back uh, and study the history of management consulting, that's exactly in the 70s where clients were, you know, you had the energy shocks, mm-hmm. uh, you had OPEC, you had all kinds of things that were killing market performance for big corporations. And the consultants came in and said, you know, we can help you improve your performance. And it's been upwards for them. Now you've got brand growth problems. That ought to be the biggest opportunity in the world. But that means that you have to have some skills that you don't really have right now in figuring out what the full potential is uh, and being insistent and arguing with a client, as we used to argue with our clients when I was at Bain, about what the right path is. Instead of feeling like, we'll take whatever we can because we're under a lot of financial pressure. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your journey now because I think uh, that was excellent on, on, on where we are today. So how did you get into all of this? 
Oh, uh, bad luck? <laughs> no. Uh, originally, well, I was in the Navy after college. The Navy paid my way through Princeton. Mm. So I had to serve four years. It turned out five. And uh, so I got to the end of my naval five-year period and said, oh, my God, how do I get a job? I was an English major, and I've been in the military. So I thought, okay. I went to business school, and I loved it. It was the case method. It was all about what should Mr. Jones do in this circumstance. And I actually wanted to teach. Uh, And Harvard invited me to uh, become a part of their doctoral program. So I entered the doctoral program at Harvard and uh, was sent to Switzerland for a year to write cases. Because what's interesting is that you took this English major, because we also have a lot of young kids who graduate who listen to the show, but you took this English major and you liked stories. Oh, yeah. So you've married, you know, story interest and storytelling with business. And the best of business is amazing stories. Listen, business uh, is all about storytelling. And uh, uh, most people, when they're trying to get a budget approved, are telling a story. Or when they're trying to get a strategy uh, uh, document approved, they're telling a story. And when they're explaining their poor results, they're telling a story. (laughs) Just like agencies who are pitching are telling a story about who we are. Everything is storytelling. Yeah. Uh, so I joined Bain and Company uh, when it was still a pretty young firm, and I worked three years in Boston. And then the time came to go to Europe, where we only had thirty people. So I joined the London office. Then I went to Munich, and uh, with nine people, expanded that operation. Uh, started a Paris office in 1984 and uh, stayed in Paris for five years. And then I became the head of uh, uh, Bain UK, which by this time was three, three, four hundred people. Mm. And by the way, so as, as you're rising, you're seeing a rise of consultancy in general. Is that fair to say? Well, no. I mean, the thing is, I was in Europe for 10 years uh, with Bain and what I was seeing. And of course, I was out pitching. Mm-hmm. I was out pitching uh, in Germany, France, in the UK and, and elsewhere. And we had a very particular specialization, which was we help clients improve their performance. So Mm -hmm. I got used to making that pitch to CEOs. Mm -hmm. Bain had some difficulties that I won't go into here in 1990. Uh, And it wasn't a fun time. I decided to quit and start my own firm. So I started my own firm, Mm -hmm. Farmer and Company, uh, in the UK. And I went out and pitched clients, and I got big clients. One day then, Ogilvy and Mather called me up and said, we need a strategy. Mm. And we got bought by WPP a couple of years ago. There's a recession now. Martin's up to his eyeballs in debt. Uh, we have to deliver and we're not making any money and we can't figure out why. Mm. And we think we need a strategy consultant. And I said, well, that's a good thing because I don't know anything about the business. Mm. And so we agreed on uh, a strategy study for Ogilvy London. And I would I would study them as if I hope your listeners won't take offense at this, as if they are a factory that makes ads. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd been in car factories and glass factories and chemical factories and lots of different types of factories. And an agency looked to me like a place that made ads mm. with people, not yeah. machine tools, of course. So I wanted to know uh, for each client how many ads they made. What's, what stuff did they have to crank out the door? This was TV, radio, print days. Mm-hmm. It was also media commission days. But I wanted to know, how much stuff do you make? 
how has that changed over time? How much do you get paid for it? And how many people does it take? Mm. And I would do a factory analysis. Yeah, yeah. Guess what? They couldn't tell me how much stuff they made. Mm. Uh, let me fast forward. Uh, we're now in 2018. Uh, agencies still can't tell me how much stuff they make. When I gave you a figure of 14,750 mm. deliverables, I had to count those myself or wow. my people did. Wow. So uh, if you know how much stuff an operation makes and what they're paid for it, you know what the price per unit is. Mm -hmm. You know a price for an agency service if you can analyze the stuff correctly. The only thing we don't know is, um, and this will sound very fluffy to you, but we don't know the price of magic. We don't know the price of something, whether it's Jack in the Box, Jack and Jack's personality, or uh, or the you know Taco Bell Chihuahua. We just no, Rob, stop right there. I see you're wearing an Apple Watch, aren't you? Yes. Is there magic in that watch? There does, is. Does it do magical things? It, it makes me feel magical. It makes you feel magical. That's enough magic. Was there a price for that watch? Did you go and pay? Yes. Okay. So something can have a price. I have an iPhone right mm. here. I think the iPhone with everything, it, uh, what I, I use it every day. I use it to navigate here. Mm. I use it to check the weather. I use it to check my email. I use it to check my messages. I use it to check my website. I mean, everything. Yep. It's magic. But it has a price. I paid a price for it. And the same thing is true of agency services. You're focusing too much on the magic mm. and not enough on the fact that you're actually cranking out stuff. Yep. TBWA New York mm -hmm. is making stuff. It has a uh, You're doing strategy studies. You're doing creative deliverables. You're doing it for each of your clients. You can count those. And you can measure the amount of work in a certain way. I invented a unit of work. I mean, right. You could do that. And therefore, you could say the price per watch or the price mm. per iPhone or the price per deliverable or the price per scope metric unit, which is my unit, is X. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what I do for a living. And I have been able to show that since 1992, when I worked with Ogilvy in the UK, in today's dollars, they were getting $435,000 per TV equivalent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Today's advertising agency is lucky to be getting $125,000 per TV equivalent. There has been a two-thirds reduction in price for agency services and mm -hmm. output. Mm -hmm. That's real. Uh, the other thing you can do if you know how much stuff an agency makes is to say, well, how much stuff should a creative have to make or should make? When I invented this scope metric unit, which is, you know, sort of a way of uh, quantifying, quantifying a scope of work deliverables, I fixed it so that the average creative did 4.1 per year if, there, if, mm -hmm. if it was all done properly. And I did this based on what Ogilvy said in 83. He said the average creative does three, mm -hmm. three ads a year. I said, okay, let's assume the productivity is improved by one and a half percent per year since he wrote that. And that's three produced. Yeah. Hmm. So the answer was 4.1. So I set my unit at 4.1. Okay. In 1992, the average creative did 2.2 .2 of my units. Why lower than four? Because they had two teams working on everything. Mm -hmm. Multiple creative teams, 
exceptional rounds of rework. So the average creative got 2.2 of my units done per year. Today they're getting five hmm. on average. But in an office like yours, I bet it varies from three uh, scope metric units per creative on one client to 20 on another. Mm -hmm. And the really underpaid clients that you have to make a margin on might be resource short, and I'll be cranking out 20 of these things. Mm -hmm. um, as procurement cuts fees, then you have to give more and more work to fewer and fewer creatives. So the effect of fee cutting is to drive up output per creative, which has got to be driving down quality. And at the same time, you know, it drives out senior people and yep. leaves the work in the hands of the junior people. So um, anyway, it was it was interesting for me to just take a pure consultant's view and say the only way I can understand an agency is if I know their workload uh, to where 25 years later I'm still saying the same thing. Yep. But the, the, the industry does not have that practice. The mm -hmm. industry, I think, tends to evaluate itself in terms of margin. Mm -hmm and in terms of awards, and in terms of their own feel for how creative they're being. Mm -hmm. I think those are inadequate to fight the battle that you have to fight yeah, with procurement today. Yeah. In other words, it's a little bit like um, uh, what the Oakland A's and Billy Bean, their mm -hmm. manager, faced in, uh, in Moneyball. Uh, 2002 in Moneyball, which is, wait a minute, we can't rely on our scouts to tell us that that high school ball player looks like he's got potential, <laughs> which is the way you might look at some creative work and say, I like that. That's what they were saying about ball play. Billy Bean says, show me a slugging percentage, yeah, yeah. show me his on-base on base percentage, percentage. Yep. and I'll tell you whether I like him or not. I, I actually am writing a book now called Madison Avenue Moneyball because it says that there is an absolute parallel between baseball as it existed around the year 2000, when the analysis guys were looking at the ball game and saying, you know, the, the traditional practitioners have no idea what the game, how the game is really won and what it costs to win it. Well, I love it. And I, they're overspending. You know, the Yankees are overspending and all the, of course. the people that are buying the sluggers uh, you know, they're, 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 they're bringing in the crowds with the home runs, but they're not necessarily winning the games. And if you look at what the cost per win is, there's a huge difference. Oh, I love it. So I, love I'm, it. I'm, I believe that this, uh, this new book that I'm reading, which is Madison Avenue Moneyball, is going to be entitled uh, um, How to Win at the Game of Advertising. Great. Because the Game of Advertising involves agencies and clients and holding companies and Wall Street and all the analysts and customers and the trade. I love it. And it's a big, complicated game, game that everybody is losing today. Well, I love it. Bill, Billy Bean versus the Bean Counters. I think it's going to be excellent. All right, good. Well, that, that's going to give us another excuse to have you on. So I think that's great. But before we, before we let you go, give us, give us one piece of advice. You know, give, why don't you give a CMO who's listening, give them one piece of advice. What should they do? You know, today's Friday. What should they do Monday? Uh, the CMO today should accept this definition of his or her problem. Your brands aren't growing and you have not mobilized appropriately the money or the relationships that's going to get you out of that jam. So you have to ask yourself, if my brands aren't growing, 
And I am the custodian of money for media and for agencies and other things and of agency relationships. What do I have to do differently? Because my current strategy, it's failing. I am actually operating in a failed losing game. And the people that I have around me, like procurement, are contributing to that loss. And the agencies that I'm working with in their own way are contributing to that because they, they don't have either the capability or the kind of relationship to operate in where they can help me. So if I were the CMO, I'd say, that is my problem. What do I have to do differently? Because I'm playing a loser's game. Great. All right, Mike, thank you so much for being here. And uh, people should read Madison Avenue Manslaughter so you can uh, bone up before Moneyball. What is it called? Madison Avenue Moneyball? Thank you. Uh, Madison Sh- Avenue Moneyball is getting Shows up. That's true. And uh, <laughs> one after that will be Madison Avenue Makeover, which is about all the success stories. I love it. It's I a trilogy. It's a trilogy. It's, it's, it's going to be the Madison Avenue trilogy. I love That's it. That's exactly it's right. It's kind of the Game of Thrones and of advertising. in the meantime, I torture uh, uh, readers by writing a weekly column on MediaVillage.com. Oh, perfect. Great. So uh, people can go online and, and look for Michael Farmer on MediaVillage.com and find a, a weekly uh, weekly rant. Weekly rant or, or whinge, <laughs> as we used to say in the UK. Excellent. All right, Mike. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashyatny.tumblr.com. <laughs>